Hi, I'm Charles Wyckoff, and it's an absolute pleasure and privilege to be here with a good friend and colleague across the retina space, Jason Ehrlich, who is MD, PhD, and currently serves as the Chief Medical Officer and Chief Development Officer at Kodiak Sciences. And today we're going to put Jason on the spot for two major themes. First, we're going to talk about his role and his experiences at Kodiak Sciences, where they are today and where they might be headed tomorrow. And then secondly, we'll dive into his personal story. What brought him from ophthalmology into the pharmaceutical side of industry and what that journey has been like. So Jason, great to be here with you today. Thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks, Charlie. And uh, thanks for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. And it's a exciting, uh, you know, new venue and um, opportunity for people to talk about how they have, um, you know, gotten, you know, into the clinical trial or clinical drug development space, um, you know, from from where we all started training as ophthalmologists. Uh, and it's, it's, a, it's been certainly a really interesting and, and rewarding career journey for me so far. So I uh, appreciate the opportunity to um, get to share some perspectives and insights. Awesome. So let, let, let's jump right in. So Jason, I love one of Kodiak Science's stated missions on your website, which says, quote, challenge the status quo. So tell me what that means. Yeah, well, you know, I think at the, at the end of the day, um, you know, everybody wants to do something that's impactful and important, right? Uh, you know, um, we, at Kodiak, you know, our, our vision, uh, you know, is not to make me too medicines. You, you know, we, we want to do things that are really going to advance patient care in, in clinically important ways. Right. Uh, so, you know, that's really what we mean by challenging the status quo. You know, if at the end of the day, our medicine looks the same as the existing medicines, then, you know, that's not what we're trying to accomplish. Right. Uh, but that, that's just, I'd say, really on the on the medicines development part. But we also want to think about challenging the status quo in terms of how drugs are developed, right? Um, for instance, at you know at, at Kodiak, we've you know we're taking this approach with with our lead medicine, the the KSI three hundred one long acting anti VEGF, um, where we're developing the medicine in wet AMD, in DME, in RVO, and in non proliferative DR all at the same time with a you know, this whole suite of pivotal studies, as opposed to doing it sequentially, which is the way it's been done in the past. Um, you know, one of the, uh, and we can get a little bit further into it, but, you know, one of, one of the, you know, potential advantages of that is a streamlined regulatory strategy where, you know, um, working with FDA, we, we negotiated to do, you know, two studies in the lead indication and then one each in the subsequent indications. So assuming those studies are successful, that could form part of a pivotal package, right? Uh, so that's really challenging the status quo. How do you, you know, rather than just proposing a traditional regulatory approach, how do you take advantage of all of the knowledge that has accumulated in the field, all of the experiences on the part of everybody who's done drug development over the last five, 10, 20 years, um, and, and sort of step up, uh, you know, stand on the shoulders of that uh, if you will, and then try to, you know, further advance what's possible um, with the regulators, right? That's, I love your, that's, I love that accelerated approach. I, I think you guys have really brought some insight into the space when it when it comes to how efficiently can we move the development process forward for the betterment of the field. And we'll get into KSI three hundred one. But the one other basic question I would ask you before we get there is, tell us about this science that you guys have, this body of knowledge that you have 
around ABCs or antibody biopolymer conjugates because this is new to the space of retina. And, and, and tell us about the science and are there any other places in medicine where ABCs are being actively used in the clinic? Right. Yeah, so the, the uh, antibody biopolymer conjugate technology was invented at Kodiak. Uh, Victor Proroth, who's our co-founder and CEO, um, he, uh, along with the other co-founder, really nurtured the, the exploration of the biochemistry uh, and, and advanced it over really many years, uh, you know, in the background from 2009 to probably like 2015, 16, before it really started getting ready for the clinic. Uh, and the, the concept really started with uh, the unique biochemistry and biophysics of phosphorylcholine. So phosphorylcholine is part of the, the phospho-part of the phospholipid bilayer on all of your cells. It's a very biocompatible material, and it structures water. It binds water irreversibly uh, in, a, in a really interesting way. Um, and there was, you know, Victor came across some of the scientific concepts around this uh, when he was, uh, he was actually doing um, venture capital and like an entrepreneurial in residence opportunity um, back in, you know, 2008. Uh, and, you know, the, the science was around how phosphorylcholine is very biocompatible and stable. And, you know, then the question was, if you could make polymers of phosphorylcholine, how could that be useful? Uh, and, you know, there was a concept around half-life extension. Uh, that's kind of where it started. And, and if you could hook up polymers of phosphorylcholine to large molecules or small molecules, could you develop drugs and have them be, um, you know, could, could there be like relevant therapeutic differences? So, you know, that, that then led to uh, exploration of where in the body, you know, these phosphorylcholine biopolymers could be, could be useful as um, when attached to a drug, like a biologic and antibody. Uh, and the eye was a really compelling one because, you know, if you think back to 2008, 2009, 2010, this was really still early on in the days of anti-VEGF. And, you know, it was already clear at that point that, you know, the medicines that we have, which are, you know, that we had then, which are the same ones we have now, Lucentis and Ivea and, and off-label Avastin, don't last that long in the eye. And there had already been many efforts to come up with technologies and strategies to extend the duration of effect, um, none of which had worked at the time, right? Uh, so, you know, um, uh, the eye was a logical place for where there was a very clear need for medicines lasting longer. Um, you know, antibodies given systemically have a very long half-life. So you don't really even need to extend the half-life of something that's given like intravenously. But if you think about spaces like the, the, um, the CSF, the eye, joints, um, you know, those are areas where, um, you know, a, a biologic or a macromolecule injected into that space will ordinarily leave relatively quickly. Um, so those were areas that were, were really interesting. And then the company spent, uh, you know, many years optimizing the design of these polymers. So there's um, essentially, you know, it's like a nine-arm polymer, and there's all this custom synthesis that's done of around the initiator, sort of that looks like a hand and a finger that then the polymer grows off of. Uh, Kodiak really pioneered the technology of um, polymerizing phosphorylcholine in a controlled manner. It's called controlled living polymerization. That's the chemical technique um, to result in a, in a very uniform length of the polymers. Uh, and then took advantage of a lot of, um, you know, chemistry that's known about how to hook uh, antibodies up 
to other things. So um, like antibody drug conjugates that are used in oncology, we use a similar chemistry to hook up the antibody with the biopolymer. So, um, you know, at the end, uh, basically what's done is we have in-house protein engineering. So we make our own antibodies and then uh, they all have like certain, you know, the, the polymer is attached just at a certain site on it in a site specific way. And then you have this large nine arm polymer. So our KSI 301 anti-VEGF ABC is 950 uh, kilodaltons molecular weight, right? So it's a very, very large uh, molecule. And the phosphorylcholine is not just dumb mass. It doesn't just make it big. It turns out the, you know, the, the biophysics and the biochemistry of phosphorylcholine it does a number of interesting things that are really useful when you think about a medicine that you want to last, have last a long time in the eye. So uh, it penetrates the retina very effectively in preclinical data, um, even more effectively than an unconjugated biologic, uh, which is really very interesting. It kind of noodles its way through because it's not a big ball. It's sort of like nine arms of spaghetti. And is it integrating into the cell membranes in the retina or is it staying separate? Uh, it's probably staying separate. I, I guess it's, the answer is probably not entirely known, but I, we would assume it's staying separate okay. um, because it, it's just the part, it's just the phospho part of the phospholipid bilayer. It's not the, the lipid part. Yeah. And um, some of your preclinical models on half-life extension compared to our current anti-VEGFs are, are pretty impressive. They're rather striking and very consistent with what we're seeing in the phase 1B. G give yeah. me the short answer that the preclinical extension of half-life, how much longer is this drug going to last, do you think? Right. Well, I think, um, you know, the, the preclinical models, you know, I'd say suggest that it, you know, it could last, you know, maybe three and a half times longer than, you know, the existing medicines. Um, but that's, you know, uh, maybe just like a kind of an approximation of, you know, you have like a lot of different models to come up to like, well, how long does Lucentis or ILEA last in the eye? We probably last like three times longer than that. But you know, that also depends on like, well, where you measure, are you measuring in the front part of the eye? You can't measure what the concentration of the drug is in the tissue. Yeah. Um, but, but what we estimate is that relative to ILEA, um, the, if you, you know, inject people with the current therapeutic dose of ILEA and our test dose of KSI 301, at three months later, you have a thousand fold higher concentration of KSI 301 um, on average, right? There's a lot of variability between patients with all of these medicines, how long they last in the eye and then how long the clinical effect lasts. Um, but, you know, so, so part of it is the half-life extension. Part of it is improved access to the tissue. Part of it is, you know, very nice biocompatibility and preclinical models of safety. Uh, and um, it has, uh, rel you know, re relative to its size, rapid systemic clearance. Um, probably, you know, not, not definitively known, but probably because we uh, impair the binding of systemically of, of the antibody to the FCRN recycling receptor because of where the polymer is conjugated. Okay. Um, but at the end of the day, in terms of the eye, when you inject a biologic into the eye, it sort of leaves, it diffuses out through the tissues. Uh, so a very large molecule is going to take longer to diffuse out. Um, the unique thing maybe there about phosphorylcholine is there's always been a question, if you make it so big, it won't work anymore. Uh, but you know, clearly we're having a very potent anti-VEGF effect. Um, so either that hypothesis was wrong or, uh, and or you know, the unique way in which we have tissue access is um, you know, allowing the medicine to work um, you know, despite its large size. So let, let's talk about that. You have, you're in the midst of a large ongoing phase 1B program across 
sort of the three most common exudative retinal diseases. Very promising data so far to date that's still unfolding. What, what, where do you see KSI fitting? Where do we go from here? You have this accelerated timeline to get to clinic. So from your perspective, what is the date that we as a field can look forward to where potentially in the clinic? And then where do you see this fitting with our current anti-VEGF agents? Yeah, so, you know, I think um, two parts there, right? So in terms of the development plan, uh, we have an ongoing pivotal study in treatment-naive wet AMD. That study is called Dazzle. Uh, and that one, you know, we're hoping to finish recruiting by the end of this year. Right now it's, you know, mid-September. So at the end of this year, we should hopefully finish recruiting. Uh, and then we're, um, you know, just in the process of launching uh, some phase three studies, pivotal studies in treatment-naive DME and RVO. So we would expect, um, you know, if those recruit according to, you know, typical timelines and there's a lot atypical in the world right now, as you know, uh, you know, we would expect to have top line results from those, that whole suite of programs, um, you know, really starting from the early part of 2022 on through the middle part of 2022. Uh, and then, you know, you have to bring all of those data along with manufacturing together into a licensing application, um, which we, you know, if those studies are successful, we would, you know, hope to try to file uh, towards the latter part of 2022, um, which could mean it could be potentially approved sometime in 2023. Remarkably which fast. Which in the scheme of drug development yeah. is like right around the corner. Yeah, remarkably fast turnaround from your first patient in. So what, what's down the road for KSI, for KSI 301? beyond KSI 301? What, what's, what's in your pipeline? I, I think you yeah. have a lot of opportunities with this ABC platform. What, what are you looking at next? Yeah, so you know, now that we really have started to generate clinical data and start to understand how the medicine behaves, the safety, you know, the, what the durability is, um, you know, we really want to think about ex further expansion of the pipeline in a couple of interesting ways. Now, the first is uh, our next medicine that's lined up is um, called KSI 501. It's an anti-VEGF IL-6 dual inhibitor. Uh, there's some really very interesting data on the role of IL-6 in diabetic, diabetic eye disease, in wet AMD, in uveitis, um, uveitic macular edema. So there's a number of places in which uh, IL-6 inhibition on top of VEGF inhibition could be beneficial. It has to be tested in the clinic. Uh, so what we would anticipate there is, um, you know, once that medicine goes through all the IND enabling work, uh, you know, some, some interesting translational medicine studies where we would look at it in a variety of conditions and start to see where it may be more useful than anti-VEGF monotherapy. And then simplistically, and it, is that two antibodies that you're attaching to this, to this, this biopolymer or is it a bispecific antibody? How, how are you getting two targets out of this? Yeah, uh, that particular one is a trap antibody fusion. So it's a, um, it's a trap molecule that's fused to an antibody. Okay. Uh, and that's, that's a pretty interesting set of technologies, protein engineering technologies. But, you know, conceptually, the, the platform itself, um, you know, could be hooked up to any different type of biologic of interest. You know, there's, there's different formats for bispecific antibodies um, that, that, have been, that have been used. And our platform could be potentially used with a variety of those formats. So, so the other really good. Go ahead, please. Oh, yeah. The, the other really interesting thing that we're we're doing a lot of work on, uh, I'd say, in the background, is what we call triplet inhibitors, where we combine a biologic, like a dual acting biologic, with um, a with a polymer that has is decorated with hundreds of copies of a small molecule drug. So, you know, one one important thing that I I didn't mention earlier is that 
our antibody biopolymer conjugate is stable in the eye. It doesn't fall apart. So it's not, it's not like, that's not a degrading polymer. It doesn't leave residues in the eye. It doesn't, right. it doesn't dissociate in the eye, which is, I think, important both for durability, but also for safety. And um, what another technology that we've uh, uh, developed is essentially you can dope the polymerization of, of the phosphorylcholine polymer with, with a different monomer that, that has a, um, a chemical linker to a small molecule drug. And that small molecule could fall off in a controlled, releasable way. So what that could allow you to do is essentially target three different biologies at the same time. We haven't revealed uh, or disclosed what targets we're going to um, be, be inhibiting or, or targeting uh, with these triplet inhibitors. But um, you know, we're really excited about those for dry MD, for the uh, sort of retinal component of glaucoma, the neuropathic part of glaucoma, um, a number of different areas where, you know, um, uh, the efficacy may be substantially improved if you, or there may be like any efficacy with, uh, by inhibiting multiple biological pathways. You know, dry MD, glaucoma, wet AMD, these are complex multifactorial diseases. And it may be to get the best benefit, you need to inhibit or, or, or target multiple pathways. The cool thing about having a small molecule is it allows you to target both extracellular and intracellular targets. So you're uh, mentioning everything in ophthalmology, but before you did mention sort of <laughs> CNS diseases, you mentioned orthopedic diseases. Are you guys looking outside of ophthalmology also, or so far we eye focus? We, we are really focused on retina at, at Kodiak. Uh, you know, we think that there's a benefit to focus. Yeah. Um, you know, there's right now, you know, there's no... Um, mid-size ophthalmology or retina-focused pharmaceutical company, uh, retina-focused pharma company anymore. If you think about the, you know, companies of the past, like, you know, Allergan and Alcon, when they were really primarily eye-focused, um, you know, really the only, you know, there's very few freestanding um, ophtha biotech and pharma companies anymore. Mostly they've been acquired. Um, so, you know, we, we think there's, there's actually like, an important need for that in the community as well. You know, I'd say the only like, you know, midsize opta company um, that's freestanding right now is Airy uh, in terms of having like marketed products. Um, yeah. And they're, you know, they've been focused really on the front of the eye. So we think there's a lot of value to focus in, and in retina in particular, we think um, there's a lot to learn. Uh, you know, the, the manufacturing for retina is complex. Uh, so, uh, you know, we think there's a lot of value there. Not to say that these other areas couldn't potentially be interesting, but it's, it's not something that we're really focusing on right now. So then last question about Kodiak, I want to talk about your personal story, which is fascinating in and of itself. I would be remiss not to bring up safety. You've touched on it briefly a couple of times. The field is in the midst of sort of a lot of different challenging safety issues with many products in development, and we're still learning what all this means, these inflammatory responses with multiple different products. Are you guys seeing any safety signals that, that we should think about? Right, great question. And of course, you know, safety is important. It's always been important, uh, but certainly there's been a, a bit of a renewed focus on intraocular safety in the community when you think about, you know, over the longer arc of time, you know, over the last five or 10 years, interestingly, a lot of the focus was on, you know, systemic safety and other differences in the medicine systemically. Uh, and, you know, we, that's not really a current topic of discussion uh, now. So. Um, yeah, so turning to KSI 301, uh, what we've seen so far, uh, we've given just about 550 doses of KSI 301 in the open label phase one study. Uh, and it, the safety profile there, we've been very pleased with what we've seen. 
there have been uh, only two cases of trace to one plus vitreous cells, uh, both of which resolved uh, with no sequelae. Uh, so those were quite mild, no vasculitis or retinitis or anything unusual. Uh, so it looks right now tracking very much similar to the safety profile of Lucentis and ILEA, uh, and we're very glad to see that. Obviously, a lot of attention to detail on manufacturing, uh, you know, um, quality uh, parameters and, and, and so on. Um, but ultimately, you know, you need to test the different medicines in the clinic. We have a variety of novel technology platforms uh, that have been evaluated in the clinic over the last several years, um, some of which have been well tolerated and some of which, right, um, we've seen have not been well tolerated. Uh, you know, we think that the fact that we're using phosphorylcholine, which is this very biocompatible material, and we're using fully humanized, you know, native form full-length antibodies, uh, both of those are, are you know, important um, factors that, that may benefit us in terms of the safety profile. But again, you know, tracking very similar to the Lucentis and ILEA profile from what we've seen so far, and in the masked uh, Dazzle data as well from that ongoing study based on, you know, the last IDMC review, for, for instance. One other question just to dovetail off what you just said, Jason. The antibody, clarify for us, it's a different antibody, a different sort of epitope that's being bound, or is it the same epitope that's being bound by other commercially available anti-VEGFs? Right, it's the same epitope uh, that binds uh, on VEGF as, um, as Lucentis and, and uh, Avastin, right? So it binds to the same spot. Uh, it has, um, you know, we'd say like very good uh, affinity uh, and potency. Uh, when you measure the potency and you know and the, the the affinity of the antibodies in a variety of different in vitro systems, right? So um, it's actually really cool. It turns out that uh, you know with the addition of the phosphorylcholine biopolymer, you actually get uh, better uh, potency measures than with an unconjugated antibody. Um, and we think that's because the sort of structured water environment of the phosphorylcholine polymer uh, favors the um, uh, excuse me, it favors the, the hydrophilic uh, antibody ligand um, interactions and it disfavors sort of the background hydrophobic interactions uh, that can occur and that can contribute to sort of background noise in the system. So we actually have better potency uh, than with an un un unconjugated antibody, which is pretty nice. Very promising. Look forward to a lot more data over the months and years to come. But I do want to pivot and now talk about your personal story, right? You, you, you have sure. an incredible... CV, Jason, just to be blunt, right? Undergraduate at Princeton, <laughs> medical school at Stanford, residency at Stanford in ophthalmology. You did a one-year clinical research fellowship, I think, at Genentech. You were then on staff at Stanford and the associated VA. And then you spent almost a decade at Genentech where you rose through the ranks, it looks like, and eventually were, was um, global head of, of clinical ophthalmology. And then transitioned um, pretty close to two years ago now, September 2018, to Kodiak. So Clearly, you've trained at premier institutions. You, you've had some incredible contributions to major scientific advancements in our space over the last 10 years. And, and, and my, my question for you is, really, what, what has inspired you along the way, and, and what drives you on a day-to-day -day and a longer-term basis? Yeah. Um, well, you know, I think it's... Uh, uh, to, to me, uh, you know, really... a. a it's largely about patients, right? Um, you know, when I was uh, chief resident at Stanford, you know, um, this was, you know, right when I think we had like the first or second Pascal laser, uh, pattern scanning laser in the United States. 
because uh, that technology was developed at Stanford. And we had that at the county hospital. And I was doing Pascal panretinal laser on lots of patients with proliferative DR. This was, you know, Avastin wasn't even available at, at, at the county hospital at that point. Uh, so, you know, thinking there's got to be more things that we can do for patients, you know, and that, that was like very striking for me personally. Uh, and it, I think it, it really impacted my, my career in a lot of ways. You know, I, um, and then I, I did MD PhD at Stanford, you know, before that I was always interested in sort of the nexus of science and clinical medicine and drug development. There were a lot of faculty members at Stanford who were involved in biomedical device companies, involved in either founding them or consulting for them, and also for biotech companies, you know, the Bay Area with, you know, Genentech, really, you know, one of the first biotech companies um, ever, uh, you know, was between Stanford, Genentech, and UCSF, there was like a tremendous amount of entrepreneurial activity in the sciences in biotech. Um, and so as a student, you know, you got to sort of be part, part of that or, you know, see it in different ways. Um, so, 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 so talk to me about that transition specifically. You're a clinical ophthalmologist. Yeah. You're on staff at a, at a great institution. What sort of led to that transition into industry? Um, what, 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 was the, what, what was the impetus for that? Yeah, well, I'd, I'd say um, in part it was fortuitous and in part it was, uh, <laughs> you know, planned, I suppose. I, um, yeah, I finished residency in 2008 uh, and I was looking for a fellowship, more training to do for a year. My wife is an immunologist. Uh, she's on the faculty now at University of Texas. Uh, she was a postdoc at Stanford. You know, I was a resident there um, and it was the, you know, 2008, like the economy had collapsed and all of the faculty positions that she was searching for had all, all those searches got halted. So she was still at Stanford. I was looking for something to do for a year. Um, and uh, Emmett Cunningham, who, uh, who you probably know, um, who's been involved in Ophthalmology Innovation Summit and, uh, you know, is a, is, um, a notable ophthalmics investor uh, now. Um, he was uh, out in the Bay Area and he volunteered at Stanford and he knew the Genentech people. He said, hey, Jason, you know, you should think about this fellowship. And uh, Stanford didn't have um, a lot of clinical fellowships in ophthalmology at that time. Uh, I met the Genentech people. I learned about this clinical research fellowship and I had always been interested in clinical trials. So I said, you know, I'm going to go. They, they offered me the opportunity to spend the year with them. I, I, I took that opportunity and it was really transformative for me. You know, I learned about how clinical trials work, statistics, regulatory, safety, protocols, you know, drug development strategy, you know, as a research fellow, I was kind of like, you know, really in that with the, with the team who was developing Lucentis at the time. Um, and I really fell in love with that and it sort of reconfirmed that, you know, for me, I could really have a big impact on patients by doing drug development, running clinical trials. And, uh, you know, coming back to my experience at, at the county hospital in San Jose with, with uh, diabetic eye disease, um, you know, the first program that I ran at Genentech was a phase three studies for Lucentis and DME. Um, they were already been ongoing before I got there. And then I, I had an opportunity to, to, to take those over as the medical uh, lead. And, um, you know, that program ultimately resulted in the first medicine being approved, the, the first intravitreal medicine being approved for diabetic eye disease in the United States. We had an FDA advisory committee, you know, it was ended up, um, it, was a, it was a complex regulatory package because there was nothing approved for, you know, as a, an intravitreal therapy at the time. So, you know, that, that set of experiences was really transformative for me. It really, you know, when I thought about 
once that medicine was approved for Lucentis was approved for DME, you know, how many thousands or tens of thousands of patients yeah. benefited in the first six months that that drug was available? It, you know, so that's the yeah. kind of impact Huge that you can impact. have. Yeah. So, 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 so for your colleagues out there that are currently in clinical ophthalmology, but interested in sort of what you've described, this whole um, pharmaceutical development pathway or device development pathway, and they're interested in looking at industry positions or they're already looking at them, what sort of advice do you have for clinicians that are interested in making that transition at least part-time? We've seen a lot of sort of part-time transitions or full-time. So I think, Charlie, you know, my advice to people, you know, it depends a lot in part on uh, what kind of career do they currently have and where, what stage in their career are they? Right? So, you know, the advice would be probably different for somebody who's just finishing up fellowship, the clinical fellowship, uh, as opposed to someone who's uh, established academic faculty or, you know, established in, in private practice. Uh, I'd say at a, at a high level, um, you know, if you're just finishing up a fellowship or early in your career, I think that's, that's a good time for people to pause and consider, you know, is there other training that they might want to have? And, you know, I thought, for instance, the Genentech fellowship that, that I participated in, which is something that they, you know, uh, I, I believe they still offer, um, those are the types of programs that can be really impactful because, you know, you can really learn a lot without, uh, um, in, in a structured environment, in a, in a, with a plan that really helps you understand, would this career transition or move really be right for me? Right, uh, and there's a number of those fellowships. Um, some of them are more academic, uh, research-oriented, but the you know the Genentech fellowship is is at least one of the more you know notable industry ones. It's not the only one. Uh, I think you know J and J and Merck and other big pharma companies have offered these, although not necessarily specifically in ophthalmology. Now, uh, some people also you know after a fellowship you know decide that they may want to pursue like a different type of um, additional degree, like an MBA. Um, that could be useful either for, you know, in, in industry or for, you know, um, business management of a large group practice or a hospital or things like that. And, you know, I, th I think that that, that could be also useful, um, you know, maybe a little bit less so if you really want to do drug development, but if you want to do banking or if you want to do uh, investments, uh, if you want to do more of the commercial side of, of biotech and pharma, that type of degree, the block and tackling and the networks that you make can be really important too. So those are things to think about if you're, if you're early in your career. Uh, uh, what I would also say is, um, and we can maybe come back to this, is where whatever stage in your career you're at, it's really important to have really good mentors. Uh, you know, people who can give you advice can be a, a neutral sounding board. Because these are hard decisions, you know, especially if you've spent, you know, many years training to do clinical practice, and then you find yourself in a position where you say, well, is that still what I want to do? Or is that going to give me the most satisfaction, allow me to help the most people in the way that I want to? Um, those are hard decisions and transitions and it's often really useful to develop relationships and cultivate relationships and keep relationships with, with mentors from residency, from medical school, from uh, you know, earlier on in your career. Uh, those, those, those mentorships can be really, you know, I'd say, uh, important in helping you think through these transitions. So now so, so let, let, let me dig on that for a second. Cause I sure. couldn't agree more. Mentors are so important to, to my development is who I am and, and, and sort of most of us, but how do you find a mentor, right? For people that say, yeah, I need a, I need a good mentor. 
what, what are they supposed to do nuts and bolts? And then maybe tell us a little bit about the key mentors that you've had over the years. Yeah. Well, you know, uh, uh, Atul Gawande, who's a clinician, who's a, a, a surgeon who writes a lot for the New Yorker, uh, wrote a great uh, article in the New Yorker many years ago about having a coach and how, you know, everybody should have a coach regardless of what stage in their career they're at, that he, that he got a coach, even though he was, you know, one of the, you know, best endocrine surgeons at, at, in Boston or, or whatever. Um, so, uh, you know, I've had a number of important mentors over, you know, my career so far. I think when I was, a, you know, a, a medical student, when I was a resident in ophthalmology, uh, folks like Mark Blumenkrantz and Emmett Cunningham were important mentors for me. Um, at Kuldev Singh, uh, also on the faculty at Stanford. Um, you know, especially as I was considering a career that was either more research, clinical research, or sort of entrepreneurial drug development oriented, just being able to speak with those people, they all had different points of view. Uh, and never really asking for like, well, tell me what I should do, but just understanding their history, their stories, and advice that they would give. You know, how could I explore a career in industry? How could I, you know, who should I talk to? Um, you know, then, uh, you know, Bob Kim, who is at Genentech, he was an important mentor uh, of mine. Um, as I grew into industry, you know, I cultivated relationships with a number of the, you know, more senior leaders at Genentech. Um, folks that probably not, not many of, of your listeners would be familiar with, people who, you know, knew the ins and outs of that organization um, could help me understand how to navigate as a clinician successfully in it. And, uh, and then over time, I built a number of relationships with other, you know, more senior clinicians, not necessarily Opta people, who were maybe like 10 years ahead of me in their career at Roche, at Novartis, um, you know, and, and uh, also in the, um, you know, in the investment community, in the VC community, people who I had met over time. Uh, and again, it's, it's, you know, to me, it's not really a question of like, well, tell me what I should be doing. But more, you know, having somebody who can really be a sounding board who may have been in these, you know, had similar experiences to yours and can say, you know, I'm trying to decide, should I, you know, stay in this industry job or should I have been offered an opportunity somewhere else? Or, you know, I'm struggling in this large political complex environment of this big company. Um, and I'm afraid to talk to somebody within the company because it may look bad for me. Those kinds of things those relationships that you have, which you can develop by going to a variety of meetings, you know, like the, um, the innovation summits, the industry focused meetings in my case, or, you know, in the case of many people in, in, in retina at ASRS at the retina society, immaculate society, AO, um, you know, it's always really valuable to, to, I think, develop, you know, meaningful relationships with people who are, you know, five, 10, 15 years more senior than you, in addition to people who are contemporaries, just because they, you know, they, the benefit of like the wisdom and maturity is, is always really useful. Jason, fascinating personal story. Thank you for those insights into your own journey. Love hearing about Kodiak. Maybe now the last chapter to add on here, you're a chief development officer and a chief medical officer. Tell us what those phrases mean and what are sort of the key leadership roles across industry that, that the space needs to be aware of? Yeah, great question. Uh, so, you know, at a smaller company, you know, and Kodiak is definitely still smaller, uh, you know, the, the chief medical or chief development officer kind of means you do everything. Uh, and, and you, so, so I, you know, I'm involved in building the team, hiring in the different functions, you know, clinical operations, regulatory, clinical science, 
statistics, pharmacology, uh, you know, some of those are roles that you may have to identify consultants for. Some of them are roles that you hire your own people and you build those teams over time. So that's a large part of my time. Another large part of it is obviously overseeing all of the clinical development of our medicines. Uh, and that involves, you know, like the day-to-day -day things, what's going on in this study, what's happening with a particular patient. Um, you know, just working with the teams to make sure that, you know, everybody's on the same page about patient management, for instance. Uh, but it also runs all the way over to making sure that the contracts with all of our different vendors and partners are what we want them to be and that we're building the right relationships with those folks. Uh, it's also, you know, keeping abreast of the science, working with an R&D organization, working with clinicians, understanding what are the needs in the field, staying up to date with all of the competitive information and all of the latest developments um, so that, you know, you can make sure that your medicines are you know, you're developing in the right areas, you're pointed in the right direction, and you're following the science. Uh, it's also, you know, I also get heavily involved in all of our regulatory interactions and all of our regulatory documents, protocols, regulatory meetings, European trial applications, scientific advice, pediatric plans. That's just like a smattering of the things. Um, I also provide like IT support and cheerleading and uh, a shoulder. Um, a man with many different hats. Uh, so, you know, I think that's, that's um, the job of, uh, you know, senior leaders at, uh, at a smaller company. To be honest, it's also the job of, you know, senior leaders in pharma too. Uh, it's, not, it's not that different, just, you know, some of the, the, the details are different because, you, you know, at a big company, you have a whole large team that takes care of things like procurement. But, you know, you still as the senior leader in ophthalmology in, at, a, at a big company, you need to be, you know, understand all the details of what's going on and be accountable for those things. I think that's, that's really important to people's success. Um, yeah, and then, uh, uh, you know, another thing that, that um, you know, a CMO does, which I think is, is probably different than what um, mid and senior level leaders typically would do in a, of Optha would do in a, in a pharma company is, a lot of interactions with investors, with investment analysts, uh, with investment bankers, lawyers, um, as well as board members, right? Uh, so, you know, in many ways, there's more stakeholders, external stakeholders in a small company. Um, and that's part of the learning experience of being in a small company is how to interact with all of those different people. Because uh, it's, um, you know, there's a number of different uh, considerations of um, you know how you finance a smaller company as opposed to the ongoing investment in R&D that occurs as a sort of a matter of course in a big company um, so it's it, that part's quite different and it's been really fun for me to learn about that Jason thank you incredible insights really appreciate hearing your story good luck in the years ahead look forward thank to you. continuing the conversation appreciate it thanks for having me today